that this happened last yes. last session. Random scarf in the woods. Everyone was like, "Ooh, it must be here for a reason." And we spent way too much time investigating and climbing trees and searching around. And I just wanted to be mean. I one hundred percent just was like, "I wonder how long they'll." And I was on. I know. Them. I know. <laughs> you you were fine. I, that's why I'm saying I'm not going to sit here being like, ha, I got you guys. I'm the superior DM. No, we have a specific relationship where I give you plot hooks and you take them because you guys are nice and don't just ignore plot hooks I give you. I abuse that <laughs> for my own entertainment. <laughs> Doesn't make me big brain DM. It makes me mean. <laughs> Welcome to Monsters and Multiclass, your Dungeons and Dragons fix. I'm Kevin Odie. I'm Jared Bornigal. And I'm Will Melton. And we'll be hanging out with you for a while to talk about anything and everything D&D related. On this episode, we're taking a look at the Warlock Wizard Multiclass, Duergard Part 2 from Mordekainen's Tome of Foes, and then another segment of Ask Monsters and Multiclass where we discuss Session Zero. So pull up your in, stick around for a while. I gotta say, that was a lot of words that we've stumbled with in the past, and you killed it, Kevin. That was a good one. Thanks. Yeah, we've hit the two-year mark, right? Yep. There we go. That's what it takes. Two (laughs) years of saying basic words in the English language every two weeks. Yeah, we get it. (laughs) Yes, because you know that Duergar and Mordenkainen are just regular English words that we use on a daily basis. Oh, you're talking about those words. Okay. Yes. No more... Mordecai's tomb of foes. Tomb of foes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our multi-class this episode is the Warlock Wizard. Uh, warlocks are the weird casters who get their powers from a pact with a greater being. But unlike clerics, there's no connection to a god. Uh, usually, it's a fey being, a demon, an eldritch being, or some celestial entity. Uh, mechanically, they get a lot less spells, slots, uh, and spells, but they all come back on a short rest. Uh, and as I've said many times before, uh, they are Will's very favorite class, uh, and what he considers to be the only full caster in D&D 5e. <laughs> uh, wizards are really the, the opposite end of the spellcaster spectrum. Uh, they get their power through hard work and studying. Uh, wizards also get a ton and Ton of spells and ways to learn new ones. Uh, they get, I guess, as many spell slots as any other real full caster, and a way to get at least some back on a short rest. So, multi-classing requirements are going to be 13 charisma from Warlock and 13 intelligence, uh, which isn't too terrible. But uh, let's go ahead and get some first thoughts. Uh, Kevin, how are you feeling about this one? I think this one has some interesting role-playing that could be done if you want to just kind of stick to the archetypes and figure out how to mash them together. Mechanically, I'm not super excited. You were just saying that the ints and charisma is not a huge deal. I think that actually is what ruins this. It makes it really hard for good synergy here. Fair enough. Will? I totally get it. You start your life as a wizard and realize, this is really lame. I want to be a real full caster. You multi-class into Warlock. It totally, totally <laughs> forgivable. As a intentional uh, multi-phase choice, uh, not doing a whole lot for me. The int charisma run-in doesn't do much. And there's just... We've said this how many times before. You can't synergize great with 
two full casters because you can only do so much full casting in a round. Yeah. Yeah, quite true. Uh, I think from a, a general mechanic standpoint, these two classes do come up quite often as small dips. Uh, a small dip into wizard gets you, you know, some really good first level spellcasting. I'd say the best first level spellcasting of any of the spellcasters as you get like six spells, uh, some ritual casting and whatever else. Um, Warlock. Four cantrips, I think. Yeah, four, yeah. Uh, Warlock, uh, might not be the best from a spell standpoint, uh, mechanically at first level, but you do get the best cantrip or damage cantrip in the game, which is Eldritch Blast. Uh, you get a first level spell slot that comes back on a short rest and two spells known, as well as just some, I think, light armor proficiency. Yes. Yeah, Warlocks get light armor proficiency, unless you go Hexblade and then you get medium. Right. Um, I don't know if that comes on multi-classing. Like, if you go... Okay, yeah, it does, yeah. it does. So, yeah, yeah so... Th- that was one of my... So when I said this isn't that interesting, I guess anything more than just like a one-level dip, maybe a two-level dip. Because Wizard, and you take one-level dip in a Warlock, you get light armor, which is just nice. You could get a- access to Eldritch Blast, though it will have to be cast as Charisma, so that's right. kind of annoying. And then you get, what is it, two spell slots... First level spell slots that you get back on. No, just one level no, spell just slot, but one. you get it back on a short rest. And then right. your first. So, yeah, that would probably. Yes, yeah, even that's questionable. Just one short, one spell slot per short rest. As you get higher, that's going to. I think I'd, I'd be hard pressed to suggest a one level dip into Warlock really ever. But like a small dip, maybe two even. I could see that working at least somewhat okay, because then you get invocations, and there's some interesting stuff there, uh, and and you get your two spell slots, so that that at least starts mm-hmm. to feel a bit more worthwhile. When you say you uh, don't think you'd ever recommend a one level dip ever, do you mean for a wizard? Um, I'd for say for any class, a one level dip into warlock's not worth it. Anything besides hexblade. Okay. Okay. I would go as far as saying that the two level dip justifies itself just too well to avoid. Right. Yeah. And and. It, and I'm taking in the the role playing perspective of that as well. There's something that just does not sit well with me taking a single level in Warlock, and I, that just always seems a little weird to me. But two levels is a okay. It's better. It's getting better. See, I don't, at that point, there's no <laughs> different. I, I would just it, it's less. I mean, yeah, I'm like kind of here, but yeah. I, get, <laughs> I get what Jared is saying entirely. It's like. You can't half-ass a pact with the devil, man. You just can't do it. I Yeah, two levels to me is like enough time for you to like realize, sit, like fully sit down and read the terms and conditions and realize that you agreed <laughs> to something you don't want. So before you get that pact of the whatever, where I feel like it's like entering into that long-term committed thing with a patron, it's like two levels in and you're like, oh, wow, this is way more than I bargained for and I need to find a way out. Uh, so that that's really all that I'm coming from there is I could see a story arc being contained within two levels. Um, just one, I don't know, some reason it doesn't seem like enough. That seems really just kind of like a minor thing, but sure. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what do you want me to say? (laughs) That's how opinions work, Kevin. Sometimes they're stupid. That said, Warlocks do also get their patron abilities at first level, and I don't think we can ignore that either. Most of them are pretty good, even if they're not, like, 
they're not all Hexblade where you get them and you're like, wow, I'm a totally different character. Uh, but most of them do have abilities that I just like aside from the undying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, most of them are bad. It just kind of depends. Is it worth slowing down your wizard progression for? Which I, is a big cost because it slows down your, your spells that you get. Yeah. I, I would say from a purely mechanical standpoint, I don't think there would really ever be a time where it would be worth it to slow down your wizard spell levels for whatever you get at the beginning of Warlock ever. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't get why you do it. It's not front loaded enough. Yeah. Not for and a wizard. It's something that you, you do neglect because you think in very abstract terms off the table, but on the table, getting a seventh level spell, getting an eighth level spell, getting a ninth level spell is game changing. Mm-hmm. At least initially. And yeah. You're delaying that for temp hit points when you kill something? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only reason to justify a dip into Warlock here is really going to be role-playing-wise. And just, you know, like, well, this fits into it, but if you just have a character concept where it makes sense, um, I I will argue to some extent that this whole idea of like, well, you delay getting 7th level spells for a level you're really not going to notice that I think as much as, as we make it sound because that's like one level break uh, where maybe other party members are casting seventh level spells and you're not there yet. I don't, I don't know. I just don't feel like in actual play that that is really that drastic. Like the clerics just kind of sitting there like, Oh, you don't have seventh level spells. Like it's, <laughs> it, it just doesn't come up. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, that's true. He might. I do. <laughs> It's just, what what are you getting out of it? Because there's also then the cost of needing to also focus on charisma. You can't just like, that's not the only cost of losing a wizard level. You don't have to focus on charisma as well as intelligence. And most of the stuff is going to require both. Uh, there's always the argument if you're like a fighter and you multi-class in the wizard because you don't want to be an eldritch knight. And you can kind of ignore intelligence just by taking spells that don't require it. That's fine, but like if you are mainly a wizard, you're going to need intelligence. You can't get around that. And right. if you're going out a warlock, the type of stuff that you look at getting usually benefits from high charisma, such as the argument of, oh, well, it gets you permanent access to Eldritch Blast that will go with your character level. It's like, great, but it'll always be cast with charisma. And if you just have it at 13... You're probably going to struggle that's pretty a weak. Yeah. yeah. And that's same if you, go, like, if you go Hexblade or you can now attack with your charisma... With your sword or whatever, and you may not even want to do that as a wizard. It actually doesn't mesh all that great with like blade singing. And again, if your charisma is just thirteen, it's like it's not really, not really that beneficial. It'll be easier to get decks higher and just use your decks with a finesse weapon. That's fair. Um, now that said, if you're like planning on this from the get go, and you, okay, because looking at a wizard, normally as you said, they are going to need intelligence. A secondary stat, usually dexterity, so that way they can get their AC up to something respectable. And then what's after that? Wisdom, maybe, but just because you have the saving throw in it, so might as well. Uh, I would say that if you're ignoring strength, you're ignoring wisdom, it's not too hard to get at least 16 in charisma, 20 in intelligence, and then something in your dexterity we'll say 16 as well. I don't know, just throwing out numbers at that point. Um, But once you're getting to that 16 range and you have plus three to your attacks, 
uh, it's at least becomes serviceable where you don't feel like you're just wasting your time. Uh, when it's like a plus one or plus two to attack, you're basically never going to hit it. Uh, but, you know, I, I could see going for the Elder's Blast just to have, you know, again, it scales with your level. So at level 11, you're making three attacks. Uh, if you have 16 in Charisma, that's plus three. And then I believe at that time you'd have plus four to your proficiency. So plus seven to hit. That's not too bad. And then if you're not focusing so much on the damage aspects of it, because you're not concerned with the DPS, Eldritch Blast does have a lot of these great abilities, like the the pushing and pulling invocations that I can't remember the name of. Um, but I always really like those just for battlefield control. And I guess there's something there. I, I don't think you're going to be super well optimized, and I don't think the synergy is really doing too much but again if you have that class or that that character concept in mind that's a way to go about it without feeling that weak that wor- that kind of worries me that uh, yeah i feel like the character concept is going to be you pacing something over to get eldritch blast <laughs> that's fair um i think there when i was looking through this there's really not too many that we haven't talked about before the wizard and the warlock both really fit they're they're Flavor is very much so baked in. Uh, And with the Warlock, it's always this idea of wanting power, making a deal with somebody, getting Eldritch Blast. And I think that fits pretty well with the Wizard uh, in the sense that they're also kind of seeking knowledge, seeking power. And something that I don't see talked about that often is how difficult it would be to actually keep learning as a Wizard. Because it's just assumed that oh, well, I'm just studying in my downtime. And oh, look at that. I discovered how to use the wish spell just from like, you know, killing stuff on the regular. Um, (laughs) But I could see having that be like a a part of your character is that you're struggling to learn more. You can't find more information. And so you turn to nefarious methods, maybe a deal with the devil, uh, take your couple levels in warlock and whereas you're doing them a service. uh, And then from there you get over that hump and can continue on with Wizard. And what I like about that is the Warlock levels almost become a punishment, because now you have to, like, not hit the top levels of Wizard. You'll never get to... Maybe you take only three levels, and so you'll still get ninth level spells, but you're not going to get all this spell mastery because you you went the easy way. And because you went the easy way and you couldn't do it, you'll never be the greatest Wizard. You'll always be a pretty good Wizard who now has some shitty warlock levels. <laughs> what kind of masochistic concept is that? <laughs> some people don't just play D&D to be the most powerful. They do it to make an interesting character. <laughs> like purposely like excluding yourself from class features. Ah, yes. This has taught me so many lessons about the nature of hard work. <laughs> I feel like you're saying this sarcastically, but I'm like, yeah, totally. <laughs> No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm only half sarcastic. Yeah, if you want to do that, go for it. That's true, but that's not really what our show here is about. I mean, where we talk about what works, how like how are these multi-classes going to work together? What are your options? Because that's an argument to be made with every single multi-class, and we've shit on a lot, a lot of multi-classes over the past two years. And every single one of them will go back to, but yeah, if you have a character concept and don't care that the character sucks... Just do it. So that doesn't give Warlock Wizard a pass. It's just... No. It's another one of those. I feel like I'm in in crazy land here. 
I guess I don't know the concept you of our are. show. Can we just start over? What What is our show about? What are we doing? I don't know. Something about optimizing dumb multi-classes. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this. I will counter Kevin's Kevin's point with this combination makes more sense than probably any other warlock combination in a weird way because you would be most exposed to this kind of forbidden knowledge. There's like a narrative temptation for wizards to fall to the devil that supersedes a lot of other crappy combinations. Yeah, and I say for role-playing wise, it does make sense for a wizard to come in contact with that and pursue it, especially if they're starting to feel a little need for a shortcut or they're in a very competitive environment and feel like they're being left behind. Stuff like that. Or on the flip side, a warlock who realizes they can increase their power by also getting to the academic side of Arcana and not just what's given to them from their patron. Yeah, what you were saying, Will, with the the wizard is the one who's most likely to uh, to get into this type of thing. Uh, I did like the idea of a divination wizard who is, you know, doing readings, doing whatever, just studying this, like, the great beyond type deal, and then accidentally sees something that they shouldn't and gets their brain broke with the great old one patron. And I feel like that's really fitting for... For the divination specifically. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's. I mean, you could go with all these kind of combinations: necromancers meeting orcus. You know. Yeah. Y- you are not limited in surface area that overlaps on these two. That's for sure. Yeah, so that's what I was saying. That the first thoughts were: there's definitely some cool role play, but mechanical. I, I just I'm not seeing the benefit. It would need to be just purely role play choice. Which is fine, but that could be set for any multi-class combination. It's all, that's all I was saying earlier, Jared. It's We don't give any other multi-class a pass just because, oh yeah, it has good roleplay, so this is great. We, we try and talk about what makes it work or what doesn't work. Right. Mechanically, it doesn't work that great. I, all I was talking about was the roleplay. Okay, it's not like you're trying to give it a pass. Like, oh, it's okay because of this, this, and this, and it's okay that you don't want it optimized. It's like, well, sure, of course it's okay. Just trying to care. That's not our discussion. I was just trying to share a cool <laughs> character concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two years in. We're not giving passes on fucking <laughs> multi-classes anymore. And saying that from a mechanical standpoint, you can get your charisma up to something that is at least serviceable. It doesn't have to be 20. It can be 16. And playing a charismatic right. wizard is a different character concept that people normally avoid in order to raise their dexterity or raise their wisdom, something that isn't actually necessary for the class. Right. No, you're absolutely right on that. But it is it is kind of nerfed. And a lot of these a lot of features in both of these classes are level dependent and main stat dependent. So, you know, you're gonna get a little bit screwed by the level on all the features. You're gonna do okay on the main stats. Probably get port and dice into your warlock. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> One level wizard dip. Or is it two levels? It's two levels. Two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't though. So in terms of why some things don't work, so like say Hexblade and Blade Singing, those are two where it might it seems like, oh, they should work. But you're just kind of giving up on too much i think so like with warlock with hexblade it's using again going back to you can use your charisma um for attacking and stuff like that but if you're just going like one level in the warlock to grab hexblade's curse like is it really worth getting your charisma up to 13 or should you just be get or 16 or getting your decks up there 
which will ultimately have the same impact on how you attack. Plus, then the deck has the added benefit of increasing your AC and deck saving throws and stuff like that. Also, then with Blade Song, you can't use a shield, you can't use medium armor, which Hexblade gives you, so that's all kind of wasted. Yeah, that's the part I think that hurts it the most. Yeah, so, and then, then going Blade Singing does give you the proficiency you need in a weapon and the light armor, anyways. So all of that stuff about uh, Hex Warrior, we're using Charisma and your proficiency and blah, blah, blah. Kind of like it's not really useful. So basically your one level dip becomes getting access to Hexblade's Curse, which is not bad. But it's is it worth a one level dip for a once per short rest? You could add your proficiency bonus to damage rolls against target when it's applied. Crit on 19 or 20 if the target dies, regain a bit of hit points. What about the other way around, though? Like a two level dip into Blade Song? Because then that at least I think has some benefit. You don't need to have your AC up to, uh, so you get a bonus to your AC equal to your intelligence modifier. As long as that is plus two or three, really it has to be plus three. If it's not plus three, then you're, you might as well wear a shield and that's just pointless. (laughs) Your walking speed increases by 10 feet. Okay. The big thing is you gain bonus to any con saving throws made to maintain concentration on a spell bonus equals your intelligence modifier (sighs) yeah it's like it's so focused on intelligence yeah where it's like if you could get your intelligence higher i don't know how you would if like if you're a warlock and you find a headband of intellect (laughs) sure (laughs) i guess this becomes worthwhile but i am not gonna go down that route yeah i mean you can absolutely that's that's great you find a headband of intellect and you Force elves to teach you. (laughs) Hey, that's going to be outdated uh, pretty soon here. Once, uh, once Tasha's come out, because I'm pretty sure they're, they're removing the elf restriction on the blade song. It says it in bold letters. I'm going to stick to (laughs) elves only. So you can definitely start a character using point by that has 16 in both charisma and intelligence. That's not a problem. Um, and then, because there's plenty of races that give you a boost to each. Right. And then if you're mainly Hexblade, every ability score improvement, you put it into Charisma to get that up to 20. And then you still have plus three in Intelligence. So you could take your two-level dip here when your Blade Song is activated, which is, I can never remember how frequently can you do this. Uh, twice per short rest. Okay, so that's pretty good. You'll get plus three to AC. Movement speed increased by 10 feet, advantage in acrobatics checks, and plus three to con saving throws uh, for concentration. I mean, that's that's actually pretty okay. The thing that I like about that is usually at some point a caster is going to take war magic or the one feat that gives you proficiency in con saving throws if you don't have it. Um, I don't remember. It's just like a, a general feat that you can choose a stat to become proficient in saving throws. Yeah. This stacks with those so that if later on you want to take those feats anyways you're still getting the plus to your con saving throws so if you like really want to be just maintaining concentration this will help it's not hurting yeah, yeah you can kind of really cheese it where i don't cheese in this right we're just optimizing it go varying human you get your starter feat make it warcaster or i think it's called resilient the feat i think you're right where you, where you pick one yeah. So give yourself your boost that way to advantage or proficiency with it. And then Varying Human gets plus one to two stats. So you make it Intelligence and Charisma, point by 15 in each to get him up to 16, and you're well on your way. Varying Human's just too strong. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and it just kind of trumps everything. And what I always like to remind about resilient, which you are correct, that's what it is. You do get plus one. It's a half feat. So you get plus one to constitution and you get proficiency oh, in the saving okay. throws. So it's a really Easy. good feat. Yeah. And again, makes makes the stat overlay pretty easy and i guess what i was trying to say with like int and charisma isn't too hard it's more of that like compared to something like the monk and a wizard where it's like yeah you need you just need dex and you need wisdom and you need intelligence like that's impossible to make a legitimately good character you're going to hold back your party in some fashion i don't think this is going to hold back your party i think it's not going to be as good as a straight wizard i don't think it's going to be as good as a straight warlock but i don't think you're going to be as bad as a, well, a monk. <laughs> <laughs> a range of paladin. Did yeah. we do that one yet? That, that's a four. Yeah. Strength, dexterity, wisdom, least, and charisma. We did one of those, and it was rough. Yeah. Yeah, the four, four uh, ability score improvements. Not ability score improvements. Four ability requirements are tough. Right. So yeah, there, there's a build where yeah, mainly Hexblade dipping into Wizard. Because also along that way, you get, what, six spells known, three cantrips. Yeah, it's, first level is three cantrips known. And you don't need a damage cantrip. Those are all just right. going to be like flavorful. Like, you know, get your mage hand, get your prestidigitation, and something else. There's no reason to take anything because force damage is like, when is that going to be resisted? Just go with Eldritch Blast. Right. Yeah, and then six first level spells, which is just a lot of versatility there. You can cast them with your Pact Magic through a Warlock as well. Um, and Gives then, you some more you spell would, slots. If you go, yeah, two level, you have three additional spell slots that refresh on a long rest. So you got your two per short last rest as a Warlock, three per long rest. It's, you're right, it's actually not, not bad. Maybe we, we're a little quick on this one. Always. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. <laughs> it's like, whatever. Now, what if you were doing... A, let me start that sentence over. You could probably also do a warlock who is not Hexblade and benefit from Bladesong at least a little bit. Because I think the Bladesong is pretty worthwhile. You can totally ignore decks and you just get some nice benefits from it if your AC is going up, walking speed, uh, and... You know, again, that constitution save. This no, like that's like a terrible flavor thing. If you're like, oh yeah, I do the blade song, but I ignore the swingy parts. I'm still casting cantrips. <laughs> it's pretty shitty from from that aspect, but mechanically, I don't know. It seems kind of worth it. Does it seem worth yeah. it, or does it seem like, oh yeah, I could see you doing that and not just be confused as hell? Well, I'd still be confused. <laughs> At least a little, right? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, remember. There were actually uh, warlocks who used weapons before Hexblade came out. Yeah, maybe you're maybe you're like your fighter dips. Your, your parents remember it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was called dipping in fighter, <laughs> and we liked it. <laughs> and taking pact the pact of the blade boon. Yeah, though that that would actually wouldn't even be necessary because the the big thing with that is it. It gives you that kind of magical weapon you could summon and stuff right. that you're proficient in, but it still can't be like a two-handed weapon or anything like that if you want to use it with blade song. Mm-hmm. And then blade singing just gives you that proficiency anyways. So what's kind of interesting you're right. is you're kind of right on that. So what you could end up doing is you do a weird pact insanity thing where you get 
Pact of the Chain and Pact of the Tome and Pact of the Blade in a way. Because Pact of the Tome gives you some wizard stuff, which you get out of your wizard dips. Right, yeah. Pact of the Blade, you kind of don't need with the blade singing. And so you kind of <laughs> find familiar. Sweet. You. I'm getting issue. all of the packs. <laughs> yeah. But the issue is familiar. your invocations. Right. Now you're limited. Your invocations to, are dependent. Oh man, I hate being limited to Pact of the Chain invocations. Oh, such no, those are great. I Don't know get me wrong. those are great, but you couldn't but get your second the attack. Ones are off the chain, bro. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, was so intentional. <laughs> I know. I don't I feel so bad. <laughs> Yeah, so you wouldn't be able to get your your second attack, and I think unless you went six levels into wizard, which is not the intent of this, so that would be a pretty big problem with not going Pact of the Blade. That's a good point. What is that, Thirsting What's the, Blade? the Thirsting Blade is the twelfth level one that's been just insane. No, that's Life Drinker, where you could add your charisma. To Life your... Drinker. Yes, that's what it is. Yes, Thirsting Blade, I'm pretty sure, is the extra attack. Yeah, fifth level packs of the blade, you get an extra attack. If you take Thirsting Blade. Yeah, otherwise there's no real good way to do it unless you go all the way six levels in the Blade Song. So you'd still probably end up taking your Pack to the Blade feature. Right, which now you've got some overlap, as we discussed, and all you're getting out of it is really good low-level spell casting and a Blade Song. I still don't like Blade Song. I, I don't, don't like it, man. I don't like the fact that we're sitting here talking about two full spellcasters <laughs> and we're looking at we're like saying, Oh yeah, one of the best ways to do this is uh make it a martial class. Make it a martial class? Don't hit anything with your weapon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Excuse me. <laughs> uh, but as I looked more and more into these other schools for wizard, they just don't really make sense. Like evocation. You get nothing that really benefits the Warlock class from what is considered one of the better wizard subclasses because Warlocks don't get that many evocation spells. And even if they do, they don't really affect people in the way that evocation spells are helpful because that gives you the spell sculpt. So it's great for Fireball, but why do you need that for Warlock? Just doesn't matter. Divination, as we discussed, is of course great. Abjuration, we've discussed a million times, is really bad for a dip because it scales very, very linearly. Mm -hmm. Enchantment would match up with like a Fey Warlock role-playing wise. Like that Hypnotic Gaze isn't terrible, but the, like the one level into the Fey Warlock kind of is a similar thing anyways. We could charm, charm somebody. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the Enchantment, the Hypnotic Gaze. Because that's the, you, you spend an action, choose a creature that's within five feet of you, a spot that you really don't want somebody to be in. Uh, if the target can see or hear you, it must succeed a wisdom saving throw against your wizard spell save or be charmed. Its speed drops to zero and it's incapacitated. And I guess, yeah, if it takes damage, it gets out of there. If you move more than five feet away, it breaks it. You really just have to stand next to somebody and just hope that they don't pass the save. And I feel like that's not usually worth it. Yeah, I mean, so in, in combat, it would be sacrificing your wizard's turn to lock one creature down, which is just because you can maintain it using your action round after round. Right. Um, they don't have to remake the save, though, I'm pretty sure. You are right. Yep, I, I jumped so in that's, there. 
I still don't know if it's worth the wizard's action, but I it's would be really I see it more as a good out of combat ability, especially in like stealth situations and things like that. Okay, that's fair. And also, if you have a spell out that lets you command it using a bonus action, I don't see why you couldn't do both. So that you could lock somebody down with your action and then use your flame sphere to whack people. Yeah. It's okay. Um, I also, well, this one was a little harder to justify, but the School of Conjuration, uh, the the two-level dip, I'm not sure if that's really worthwhile. Um, just about ever. That just lets you make a small inanimate object. Can't be larger than three feet on a side, weigh no more than 10 pounds, must be non-magical, and it radiates a dim light. Anyways, not a huge fan of that one, but at the sixth level, the benign transposition, I feel like that's just a good ability, but I don't know if it really meshes with warlocks specifically. So you can use your action to teleport 30 feet, uh, or you can swap places with somebody. That just seems good to have in general, but unless you're like, Mm -hmm. you know, going that hexblade warlock and trying to really rely on positioning, I don't see how it, how it meshes with, with warlock. Yeah, and going conjuration doesn't seem worth it. No. Especially not six levels into it. Right. And then there's always the classic war magic that always comes up in multi-classing discussions. And like a Hexblade war magic is... I mean, there is benefit there, like arcane deflection. Um, You could, as a reaction, get plus two bonus to your AC or plus four to saving throws. Like if you're a Hexblade up in the fray attacking things, who's not going to be casting... Every turn, because then if you use that, you can only use a cantrip until the end of your next turn. Right. So, all right, there, that's kind of a nice thing to have for any sort of martial character. Yep. And yeah. tactical wit, yeah, being able to add your intelligence to your initiative rolls. Power surge doesn't exist. And then if you go all the way to tense, <laughs> the durable magic, where you maintain concentration on a spell, you plus two bonus to all, to the AC and all saving throws. And they go, that's kind of a nice thing, but it's 10 whole level, so you probably won't get to it. Yeah. I thought you said. Gerbil magic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. Just neat. Yeah, gerbil magic. Sure. How we feel about war magic. Power surge doesn't exist. Gerbil magic. <laughs> <laughs> I, we've definitely talked about it in the show and we don't need to go in detail. Power surge, though, is a six level ability. That's where if you, um, whenever you successfully dispel magic or counterspell, you gain one power surge. And if you finish short rest out, then you gain one. And once per turn, when you deal damage to a creature or object with a wizard spell, you can spend one power surge to deal extra force damage. That extra damage is equal to half your level. It's a very small amount of damage. It's like casting dispel magic and counter spells kind of a rarer thing. It's like it's an entire ability dedicated to like when you get it doing three damage once per short rest. I could see using that as a DM, like making an NPC that already has four power surges with like no yeah. need to explain it. And that would work fine as an enemy, sure. But as a player, I just, I've never heard a positive experience with power surge. Nah, like, I mean, those are but both third level spells. I know counterspell is. This dispel. Yeah, they're both third level. So, I mean, until you get really high, those are kind of a big deal. You don't even get that until fifth, and then you just have like one or two slots. 
for a while and it's often like third level spells is a very competitive spell slot like fireball is in that and others this is the type of stuff that i i look at (laughs) i look at now if if you want another third level spell that's good haste it's always my go-to yes, yeah um but this is something that I, I look at now and think that based on the direction they're taking new subclasses i would see this one having a proficiency bonus rider to it where you have after a long rest up to your proficiency bonus in power surges and you can get some back if you use counterspell or dispel magic like the idea of just giving one it's like they they didn't even play test this right you can, even if you like a level twenty wizard, it's each power surge allows you to do ten damage. Yep, like that's not a crazy amount, and and I know it's auto damage, and I get we anytime automatic damage that like can't be resisted or rolled against comes up, it's always super super low. Like Wizards of the Coast is like kind of afraid of it, and I do get the mentality, but I think it's overtuned. They've lowered auto damage so much. That is just like never really worth it. But it's not even like they had something to be afraid of because look at the empowered evocation, the 10th level ability from School of Evocation. Beginning at 10th level, you can add your intelligence modifier to one damage roll of any wizard evocation spell you cast. That is doing a whole lot more than power surges throughout a day. That's true. Yeah, I guess with power surge, you still need a hit. You choose to spend it when you hit. Right. Yeah, so they phrased still that, it in a way yeah. where it seemed a lot less connected to that, but it's still yeah, yeah, it's just dumb when you deal damage. Yeah, but I mean, empowered evocation. You cast fireball. Yeah, you have plus five to your intelligence. You're doing five damage to every enemy you hit. That's going over the ten that a twentieth level yeah. war magic caster can do. Yeah, and it's once per turn, right? Empowered evocation. No, it's just it's just not even a limit. Oh, you just do it. Okay, yeah. one <laughs> so like every time you cast fireballs, I mean damage yeah. roll. Yes. It's not even it's not even a leveled spell. So that works for your cantrips too. Yep. Yeah. I think you're right about the proficiency thing. And I'm I, that's one of the things that I'm kind of not looking forward to because it's going to there's a lot of multi-class implications to starting to tie things to proficiency bonuses. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Changes a lot. We're going to have monsters in multi-class mm-hmm. 2.0. <laughs> Tasha's in multi-class. <laughs> the sister series to this series where we contradict ourselves on everything or if we wanted to you know again just start separating from the multi-class thing just do monsters and everything monsters and everything yeah yeah <laughs> all right let me see here let me see if i get any more notes on the warlock wizard that is worthwhile i don't think so just a real general thing wizards options for spells is a lot more than warlock so there's just a lot of versatility there by getting access to them and one level dip gives you access to the spellbook feature where you could copy down and learn additional wizard spells you can't go beyond the level that you can know for wizard spells so one level dip you can only do it for first level spells but that could really expand your versatility yeah if only there was a like different that. way for a warlock to get a spellbook that'd be cool <laughs> <laughs> darn it Oh, can they actually even copy down? I want to say that's an invoke, or that's a, yeah, an invoke. Invocation? I'm the warlock guy. What am I doing today? (laughs) Yeah, there's Book of Ancient Secrets if you have the Pact of the Tome. And you're right. They're not, I mean, it's not a one to one comparison, but it is certainly, it's got some similarities. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Book of Ancient Secrets Invocation allows you to add ritual tags mm. into it. And so you, you start off with two, and then if you find more, you could copy them in, in the same way that you would as a spell book, basically. Which is pretty good. I, I feel like when I look at ritual spells, there's some that are really great. Uh, I believe Detect Magic is a ritual spell, and probably one of my favorite ritual spells. Uh, but otherwise, you get some that are just like, okay, like the the Tensor's Floating Disc. That's a ritual spell. That spell's okay, sure. game-changingly good. Please, back that up. I would love to hear your <laughs> It's a floating disc. You can put stuff on it. Yeah. It has it. We have used it for sure. We've gotten use out of that spell. Agreed. If it cast if it cost a spell slot, we wouldn't. So it that's the type of thing it's perfect for a ritual. It's very sure. specific. You don't need to have wizards at least don't need to have it prepared. And if you're a warlock taking this, there's preparing a spell is not a thing, so it's just kind of there to pull out of your back pocket. I love collecting ritual spells as wizards. Because like you just never know. There's no cost to them. Yep. I think that is perfectly fair. They just are very specific. Yeah. Hence why the rituals. All right, and then there was one more thing I wanted to bring up. And we normally don't dive into this type of stuff on the show where like a homebrew fix. But a common homebrew I'll see discussed is making warlocks an intelligent caster instead of a charismatic caster using the intelligence stat. It's common enough. I think it's worth at least discussing in here because that, of course, has major implications for this multi-class. And it actually makes a lot of things super viable, especially Hexblade, because then that just gets absolutely fucking nuts. <laughs> no, that sounds yeah, great. That, that great might idea. be phenomenal. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Well, I know you've been waiting to scream about this. I, I hinted that we were going to bring this up. I, I don't even yesterday. know what to say. Um, anyone who does this or allows this at the table should be banned from the game forever. wow here i was worried that there would be like actually something useful in his rant but nope just just quit playing sorry no not quit (laughs) (laughs) it makes sense like from a role play perspective uh, warlocks being charisma it does feel a little odd I think the kind of intent is is they needed the charisma to make a good deal with their patron, but that feels a little weak. That's the really only argument I've seen. Uh, Because they're not just like pulling power out of the nature of the universe. Like they need to be able to study into these patrons, contact them, kind of negotiate and navigate all that. And to me, that intelligence makes more sense. Also then just from a... Oh, I should say that I always view the charisma aspect from the idea that they have like a a strong soul is the only way that I can put it, like a strong force of themselves, uh, and so they're that's like what allows them to make these connections, and that yeah, that's that's it. And I don't know if that like really that seems like what they're going for, but you know, it's it's kind of eh. That works too, as in not being just completely like overcome and overpowered by these patrons, right? In a sense, but I mean, that's not what they're trying to do. They're they're looking to make a deal, give somebody power for. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's definitely not a bad way to look at it. Yeah, that's how I viewed it too. As a, you're a <laughs> conduit for greater powers, and that's a more of a force of will kind of thing than a okay nerd stuff. I, I like the way you put it there. In that, if you were. Not if you were not very charismatic from a stat perspective, uh, then you wouldn't be able to handle the power that that surges through or or use it in any effective way. 
Yeah. Right. Not, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't like explode into dust, but you just, you would not be a good conduit <laughs> for the devil or the. Okay. Oh, you might. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. You say you wouldn't explode the dust, but like also that'd be kind of awesome. <laughs> like you had to. Which is a good way to deal this like this. is a good this. way to do it. So you, uh, your player comes to you with this great idea. Allow intelligence as a warlock thing. You let him take the dip. Dust. <laughs> oh man, it was it, the charisma was important, man. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know, it's just it's crazy. It's like we couldn't have foreseen this at all. <laughs> I rolled for it, dude. I swear, I rolled for it. <laughs> so you make a good point about the kind of force of will, force of personality there being able a good, good conduit for this power greater than you. That does bring up the argument then of why aren't clerics charisma? It's a different. I see those as kind of two similar but different ep- elements of that force of will where see this is really hard because I'm totally bullshitting this is all bullshit there's no science behind this but as a cleric oh <laughs> I'm sorry this is a science-based fifth edition podcast how magic actually works in real life with math okay <laughs> But like as a cleric, you almost bring forth the powers of the god, which is it is grafting metaphors from the real world. Like your your faith pulls this to the world, whereas warlocks, it's a more sinister kind of. But how is that? How is that wisdom over charisma? I don't know. How is that wisdom? Because <laughs> it, it, it's religious. Man, I don't know. Well, uh, no, but actually, religion religion is right? an intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intelligence skill. Uh, yeah, the only thing that I could think of is that idea of, no, no, I got nothing. <laughs> Why? So there are arguments to be made for Warlock being int-based, and then it also just kind of, within the scope of the classes, we're going to take Artificer out of this for the moment because that didn't exist when 5th edition came out. If they became, if Warlocks were intelligent, it fit just really well in the balance of the classes, you had two casters for each mental stat. Charisma then would be Bard and Sorcerer. Uh, Wisdom would be Druid and Cleric. And then Inch would be Wizard and Warlock. And then they also each have lesser casters where Wisdom gets the Ranger as a half caster. Charisma gets the Paladin. And then Intelligence will get two one-third casters, roughly. Kind of still someone in the synergy there. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, still, you kind of had the lesser options of it. But then making Warlock charisma, it just threw all that out. And, and uh, Warlock being intelligence, doesn't, it doesn't like break the class. It's just, it almost has very little impact on the class. And then since you have these two, two full casts are now intelligence, it makes intelligence skills more common when they're pretty rare as is. So there's a lot of good arguments for that. So if you're at a table where you've gone that route, where you've homebrewed Warlocks into intelligence-based casters, this multi-class of Wizard obviously becomes a lot a lot more viable because all you have to worry about is intelligence. Because then a hexblade dip, it allows you to use your intelligence to attack and all, all that good stuff, which then works really well with blade singing, obviously. Um, or just you know the, the quick dip in the warlock to get Eldritch Blast when I'll be using your intelligence. Same with any other warlock spell, and all this just synergizes and works a lot better. Definitely, I, I guess I'd be open to to giving it a shot. I still don't know if I fully agree with the the flavor aspects of it, of like intelligence making more sense and how you'd navigate these deals or these entities. Eh. 
Like I would kind of, so as you were saying, all right, so it's force of will and personality to channel this power. Right. You could say it's full, full mental acumen. Okay. And like you're the brain power to be able to understand and comprehend what is going through you and harness it. So they're, they're both viable arguments. I'm not saying one's better than the yeah, other. Just... To, to, to argue the opposite of that, though, uh, just because we recently have played Call of Cthulhu and I've been familiarizing myself with those rules. And that the smarter you are and the more that you comprehend, the more likely your brain is to break. So I think there actually is a benefit in warlocks <laughs> being stupid. They're just supposed to be big, dumb this, idiots. This is where, all right, so we're now a, firmly in my camp of how I view warlocks as the, <laughs> the true master class of D&D. Big dummies that are inured to the dangers of the evils around them by sheer stupidity. <laughs> and that's, I, I legitimately do have this belief that intelligence would be negative, co- negatively correlated with your ability to deal with and even your willingness to enter these pacts. <laughs> that's actually a fair point. The smarter you are, <laughs> the more you're point. like, why would I ever get mixed up in this? <laughs> Especially if you were like fully capable of the wizard path, you know, Right. I would never be a wizard. I, I would be ashamed of being a wizard. I would bring shame to my family. <laughs> but warlock, you know, I am a unique case, though. I will admit. <laughs> uh, as for that, uh, so back to earlier, we're trying to figure out why a cleric would be wisdom based. I think using this this concept of a warlock is really in this like push and pull relationship with the patron where they're like trying to get power from them and they're trying to harness that power and use it without it being too much or too little, whatever. Uh, Clerics have a very different relationship with their patron where it's more about a mutual understanding and respect. And from there, I don't think they need that charisma in order to fully manifest it they need a a wide understanding like a a sage-like understanding of the world uh, in order to better utilize it and better understand what their patron actually wants whereas i don't think warlocks generally care what their patrons want they just want what they want from them it's it's really reading into it but i see wisdom as a skill that grants you a certain level of harmony with whatever you're dealing with and that's uh right Really, you see that with cleric, druid, monk. Yeah, so that's that's mm-hmm. where I'm going to go with that. And in the same way that you know, you could see uh, intelligence working for a warlock. I guess I could see charisma working for a cleric if you wanted to to go down that route of just like, yeah, that's a lot of power to just be inside of you, and you have to have a strong sense of self in order to hold on to it. Oh, the, yeah, are we doing that, full right? gloves on our feet? <laughs> Let me tell you about my Dex Barbarian. (laughs) Rage makes him more vulnerable to damage, but it doubles everything else. (laughs) I'm not saying you should go switching around stats and everything, but it's at least a a fun conversation to have to to figure out why these things are like they are. It's really easy to just accept them, but to to break it down, to, to deconstruct the philosophy of the game, Will, that's what we're here for. Yeah, I liked Kevin's uh, semi-mathematical symbolic breakdown of the various mental skills applied to the various classes. And then it takes like this Lord of the Rings Sauron twist. But one class decided to be <laughs> a charisma caster. <laughs> <laughs> 
Two classes for the wisdom. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that said, I think we're we're far gone from having any more value to add to the wizard warlock conversation. Yeah, you know when us three are bringing up home brewing, it's, it's <laughs> actually really done. <laughs> yeah, that, I, but, I only only brought this one up because it's, it's I just see it all the time on like D and D message boards and communicating communities right. about oh can warlocks be intelligent? Since yeah, sure, doesn't break anything. To to go more into the mechanics of that, I would be willing to try that at the very least for like a, a one shot or something. And I'm having mm-hmm. this aversion to it because I have this this gut feeling of like, but that makes the multi class way too strong. It makes it way too good. But then looking at you know the polarterer or looking at the bard sorcerer or any of these ones I mean, cleric druid explain not so much in, yeah, yeah 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 like there's a lot of times where yes having the same stat makes them really really good in this case it would make the hexblade paladin bad if the warlock was intelligence based so mm-hmm. you know there's there's uh it, it's like way too big of a pill to swallow that i would need to actually see it in practice yeah yeah i don't just trust nerds on the internet what do they know <laughs> but we are nerds on the internet no, no kevin i'm and in my what house do we know i'm a charisma podcaster <laughs> <laughs> all right and with that let's go ahead and transition into our promotional minute uh, so if you are not yet, please, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure to leave a review as well. Uh, helps other people find us and enjoy our lovely dumb shit conversations. Uh, <laughs> uh, follow us on social media. Let's go ahead with Twitter. That's at monsters underscore multi on Reddit. We have our monsters and multi-class. Uh, where we just hit 500 subscribers. Woo! I'm going off the rails. That's what I get for for drinking before 10. (laughs) (laughs) Not even drinking. So, that's it. That's everything. Let's get on to the Duergar. And Kevin, you can just splice that however you want. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Just get one for a different episode. (laughs) That's fine. I'm okay with that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say this is my best work. I feel like I had shit that I wanted to talk about and it's just, it's all gone. So, Duergar. Part two. All right. So, our monster of the week is going to be Multiple Monster. We're continuing the Duergar section from our episode, uh, well, two episodes back. So, if you didn't catch that, recommend going back and, uh, giving it a listen for a lot of the Durgar lore and history. Uh, this one's probably just going to be focused more on the individual stat blocks. Uh, so we'll be going over the Durgar Screamer, Soulblade, Stoneguard, Warlord, and the Zoron. So let's go ahead and start with the Screamer. Durgar Screamer. This is a construct, kind of. Uh, uses sonic energy to grind rock into dust. Uh, but the important bit here is that there is actually a Durgar in this construct. Uh, in the same way that we talked about the the Hammerer, uh, this is just something that they do to to punish dissenters. And it just, I don't know, they, they have weaponized their agony. Uh, 
which is totally normal. Just a thing that that every society does. Yeah, they, they kind of like the poetic punishments. <laughs> so like the Durgar hammerer, it's if they lack work ethic and stuff like that, they get put in this hammerer suit where they are now forced against their will to hammer at rock all day. That's hard work. The Durgar screamer is if they're accused of spreading gossip and plotting against things and kind of that silver tongue, they're put in the screamer and now they're forced to... Scream at racks. <laughs> I mean, I'm, that's not ironic. That's not sarcastic. That's what they do. They sonic scream at racks to break them up. This one, I don't know. Maybe if we read this one before the hammerer, I would have liked it. But after reading the hammerer, this is like, oh, the screamer is basically the hammerer with like one change. Yeah, which is okay. I mean, I'm I'm usually all right with that because it does have the engine of pain ability that the hammerer also has, uh, which is. Uh, once per turn, a creature that attacks the Screamer can target the Durgar trapped in it. The attacker has disadvantage on the attack roll. On a hit, the attack deals an extra 2d10 damage, uh, but the Screamer can respond by using its multi-attack with its reaction. Uh, so it offers up this risk versus reward. You might get 2d10 extra damage, but uh, they get to attack you again, uh, which can be pretty rough. They pr- They hit pretty hard, especially for a... Uh, challenge rating three so looking at the the rest of their stat block they are pretty similar to most other duergar but they don't get their enlarge or invisibility feature so ac of 15 hp of 38 speed of 20 Uh, they have a strength of 18 which is pretty nice immunity to poison the normal condition immunities of charmed exhaustion frightened paralyzed petrified or poisoned for a construct not for a duergar uh, 60 foot dark vision and the engine of pain that we just talked about their multi-attack lets them make one drill attack and use their sonic scream so the drill is plus six to hit reach of five feet and 1d12 plus four piercing damage uh, which is pretty good average of, of 10 damage Their sonic scream is the screamer emits destructive energy in a 15-foot cube. Each creature in that area must succeed on a lowly DC-11 strength saving throw or take 2d6 thunder damage and be knocked prone. I think the prone is probably one of the most important parts there. As the damage Mm -hmm. itself, 2d6, eh, it's not too bad. That DC, though, of 11, that's just not much. No, especially not for... It's an every turn. But it's strength. So, I mean, that's, I, that's, yeah, kind of it, yeah. Difference. If it was its own action and like it could do two drill attacks with its multi attack or the sonic scream, not that great, but it's part of its multi attack. So, every single turn. Right. What I always have to keep in mind is your party's not going to fight just one of these really ever. At least mm-hmm. they, they shouldn't. So, you're going to have a lot of these coming through. And the same way that we were talking about the ghouls last episode, where sure it's a DC of 10 somebody's probably going to fail, and when they do, they get a beating. Yeah, eventually someone else. Especially because it's strength. A lot of characters dumb strength. Right. And not many have... It's not like it's constitution or something. Right, and not many have proficiency in the saving throw. Right. So I think it'll get some use, um, or these are good ones to pepper in with the other Duergar. Right. Get the Sonic Stream off. Um, They just need to be careful because, I mean, it's thunder damage, and... I don't think any of the other Duergar have any form of immunity. Like, Constructs don't have immunity to that or anything. So, they could very easily hit each other with us. So, it's kind of one of those things to be careful for. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And one thing I always love to point out for these types of multi-attacks is remember that the order of them does not dictate how you have to use them. You don't have to drill and then sonic scream. If you sonic scream first and then successfully knock somebody prone, you know, you like you do it against three people, you only knock one of them prone. Now it lets the screamer know who it should attack because it's going to hit the one that fell down. Right. Get that advantage. Yep, definitely. Um, and that I think that does work pretty well as with more Durgar because, again, you knock even one person prone, they become a very big target. And this does have that weird engine of pain thing, which you mentioned, which the hammer does too. And we talked about that in great length in that episode, so we won't rehash it. But it, it just seems sort of weird about this actually has a cold shot when nothing else in D&D does. And we, in the last episode or two episodes ago, I should say, kind of went into detail about different ways to handle that. None of which I remember. So if we started talking about it, it would feel like a fresh conversation to me, which is not good. So... <laughs> Uh, so let's go to the Soul Blade next, because I think that's that's enough for the Screamer. Uh, so the Soul Blades are Durgar warriors who have just mastered their psionic abilities uh, and, and manifested it in a psionic blade. Uh, so they are a only a challenge rating one, but they have a pretty versatile stat block. And I think really the only reason they are so such a low challenge rating is because somebody was just not feeling like giving them more armor and hit points. And this could easily be a more difficult fight with just a couple simple changes that I'll talk about after. But to start, AC of 14, HP of 18, speed of 25. Uh, Nothing too special to talk about with their stats, just a plus three to dexterity. Everything else is pretty middle of the road. Uh, They have their Durgar resilience, so advantage on saving throws against poison, spells, and illusions, as well as resistant to charmed or paralyzed spells or saving throws they can create a soul blade so as a bonus action the durgar can create a short sword sized visible blade of psionic energy the weapon appears in the durgar's hand and vanishes if it leaves its grasp or if the durgar dies or is incapacitated which is cool flavor wise at the very least just making a a psionic sword uh they get some spell casting blade ward and true strike then some spells three times a day they can cast jump and hunter's mark and then of course sunlight sensitivity so then they have their soul blade they get one attack it is melee weapon attack plus five to hit reach of five feet 1d6 plus three force damage or 2d6 plus three if they're enlarged and if they have advantage on the attack roll they deal an extra 1d6 force damage they don't really have too many ways to reliably give themselves advantage, though. True strike. Well, yeah, true strike, but it's I don't think it's ever worth it. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what I mean. Is sure they can do they can set up their entire turn by casting true strike to get one d six next turn, or they can just attack twice. Right, and just put hunter's mark on them. Right, which is also concentration, and that's where it's really killer. Is because Hunter's Mark is, of mm. course, going to be a great idea. And what does that do? It gives 1d6 extra damage. Right. So why would you ever yeah. cast True Strike for it? Doesn't make sense. It's almost like a joke. It's like, <laughs> all right, what are the two worst combat cantrips in the game? Blade Ward and True Strike. Give it to the Soul Blade. Right. <laughs> There's like universally panned cantrips. 
Here, here's like one thing that you think, all right, this might not be so bad. Invisibility, you're invisible. You cast true strike for your first advantage strike, you know, but casting it breaks your invisibility. Yep. Right. They, it's just this one, two punch of <laughs> just kidding. It's still terrible. Yeah. Right. If you just attacked out of the invisibility, that first attack would have advantage yeah. anyways. So, so I guess that's another reliable way just at the start of combat. And that is how I do it is when coming out of invisibility. Great. They get an extra one D six force damage because they have the advantage. If they're with other enemies, again, that screamer knocks somebody prone. Great. They have a way of getting the advantage and doing the extra damage. Right. But the blade warden true strike, as you said, they seem to be jokes. Like, why Why would you ever cast those? That's pointless. Unless as the DM, you're like, oh, I want them to be really bad because I'm having this go up against like a brand new party. They have never played D&D before. I'm going to have them waste a turn using True Strike so that way they can see how bad of a spell True Strike is. Hey, Reddit, my party thinks that Blade Ward and True Strike are good. How should I, how should I convince <laughs> them that that's not true? Well, have a team of Soul Blades do nothing for the first turn and then just get destroyed after doing nothing. Right? <laughs> I can say, yeah, 14 AC and 18 hit points. They don't really have the health and defenses no. to like waste a turn. Not at all. In case anyone's not aware, real quick, True Strike is a cantrip. It's an action to cast. It's an entire action. It lasts one round in its concentration. You target one creature, and then your first attack roll against the creature on your next turn um, has advantage. That's it. So you give up an entire action to get advantage on one attack next turn. So even if you have some weird shenanigans where like you manage to do this as a bonus action, as written, and then like and then attack, you wouldn't get advantage because it doesn't come in effect until your next turn. Um, and it's concentration, so it breaks anything else you're concentrating on, such as Hunter's Mark, which the Soul Blade gets. Blade Ward is at least not concentration, but it's a cantrip. It's your entire action. Again, if for one round you give yourself resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. And there I are feel like there's like some moments that's useful. Yeah, but like not many. You're usually going to be better off disengaging and not taking the hit yes. at all or something like unless you are for some reason trying to tank because somebody else needs to do something and you're like holding the line but if you took blade ward for that one very specific instance i think you'd be all right just taking the dodge action because then you just might mm-hmm. not get hit at all because all attacks against you have disadvantage and that's cool i mean you know it's just i don't i don't get it yeah if you're like about to get shot by somebody with a particularly powerful but non-magical bow that they're really good at using. <laughs> yeah, As they stare sense. at you, they draw the bow and they say, I'm about to shoot you. I'm you using go, oh. True Strike. <laughs> actually, actually, I use Blade Ward. It's, it's like kids <laughs> fighting on the playground. Like making up. You know, True like, oh, Strike, yeah. Blade Ward. <laughs> so yeah not really worthwhile i as for making this into a more maybe i want to say fun monster but at least a little bit more difficult monster i do think that is at least pretty simple just up the armor class up the hp give it multi-attack to soul blade and this thing will last more than a round I just don't get why they made this challenge rating one. I feel like there's enough challenge rating one Duergar that I didn't need this one to be challenge rating one. 
Right. Boost a little bit. Yeah. The multi-attack would make a big. Yeah. Because then your Hunter's Mark's really doing some damage. If for some reason it has advantage on an attack, again, something knocks the player prone, uh, then we're talking about, if enlarged, 4d6 plus 3 damage on every hit with the Soul Blade. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty devastating. And that's like getting into a, oh, they're cool and do this force damage and... They now fit a specific niche. Yep. Why jump too? Like who? Who thought that jump was the spell that they needed to cast three times a day? <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of lore on them. There's one sentence, so right. <laughs> base it off of. Soul blades are Durgar warriors whose mastery of psionics allows them to manifest blades of psychic energy to slice apart their foes. They're obviously That's it. so. A there's, rogue. Yeah, there's nothing like pull from there. They're, the rogue, there's they're just really. Yeah. Not finished rogues. Yeah, I might also, if we're looking at, you know, making these things a bit stronger, would probably steal some of those new psionic cantrips. I think there's one, there's one in Xanathar's that's like Mind Spike or something like that, Mind Slayer. That might be a leveled spell, I forget. But I think Tasha's is definitely mm-hmm. adding some psionic cantrips that would probably be good to look at here instead of Blade Ward and True Strike. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise because i don't think we specifically said it does get it's in large ability and it does get invisibility just to clearly state Buster that yeah get yeah uh next up is the durgar stone guard so the stone guard are elite durgar troops deployed in small numbers to bolster war bands of regulars or organized into elite strike forces for special specific missions so they're you know good durgar <laughs> they're stronger <laughs> ones yeah elite troopers i mean i in defense i don't think these ones need more of a description elite troopers basically says right like every like faction and race or whatever has their elite troopers everyone kind of knows what understands totally what that entails so that what that specifically entails here is 18 ac one of the higher ones for the the durkar 18 strength which is also, again, nice. Durgar Resilience, which I won't restate, but then it also gets this Phalanx formation. Uh, so the Durgar has advantage on attack rolls and dexterity saving throws while standing within five feet of a Durgar alley, alley, ally, Ellie. wielding a shield. It was because wielding was <laughs> right after. Durgar named Allie. Yeah. <laughs> if she's not named Allie, or I mean, him or whoever, if they're not named Allie, you don't get it. I'm sorry. Nope. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really confusing that like any social gathering, cause they're just all named Allie for that reason. <laughs> so they do have shields making it obviously make sense that they are stronger in a group because they're giving advantage on mm-hmm. attack rolls for each other and these dexterity saving throws. Yeah. Specifically with other stone guard and i just really like the flavor of that it's the the idea of like the greek or roman yep. soldiers forming that phalanx group enough because i don't think any other durgar just in the base stat block gets a shield nope the warlord gets a shield but it would make sense that the warlord could be a part of this yep. i don't think that, other than the stone guard and the warlord that any get a shield so it really makes sense where it kind of adds that they need that skill level that eliteness to play into this like a stone guard standing next to a hammerer is not going to like really get benefit, but other stone guards who know how to fight together. Yeah, I like that a lot. Definitely agree. Uh, and so for their actions, they get King's Knife, 
which I'm assuming is in reference to their specific blade, uh, which in the art looks really cool. It's like a, a normal mm-hmm. short sword just with jagged teeth on both sides of it. Uh, so I guess that's the king's knife. Again, we don't have more lore than the one sentence they gave us. So got to make some right. assumptions here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that is plus six to hit. Uh, 1d6 plus four piercing damage. Or 2d6 plus four when enlarged. Uh, they also get javelins, which just work like any javelins. They can throw them. They can stab with them. Uh, that does fit that whole Spartan mentality, which I like yeah, if you want to have it be there. Holding the line with shields and spears. Great. Javelins are very fitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does the same damage as their king's knife. Right. The exact same. Which, again, what is this king's knife? What's the point of it? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's like, if they give it a named thing, it's not just short sword attack or whatever. It's a named thing. There should be something to it. Yeah. I just... just a rider of some kind. It's coated in poison. It's enhanced with psionic energy and does a bit of extra damage. Just something, but it's it's quite literally just a short sword attack. Yeah, it, but they call it King's Knife. But there's no explanation anywhere in what that is. This is unless we missed it. They're buried somewhere in their chapter at the beginning of Morning Cadence. That might we yeah we are either incompetent or this is a violation of the Chekhov's gun thing. Can you elaborate on that? Chekhov said if. You're writing a book and you tell everyone that there's a gun on the mantle place. You have to fire that gun. Gotcha. Got it. Okay. Or if your DM tells you that there's a scarf in the woods, then. Yeah, that's, it's actually that's the just... purposeful subversion of the idea. There's a scarf in the woods. I'm going to watch my dumb players waste time on this. You guys were not dumb. I set you up. That is not fair. Yeah. I would never call players dumb yes. for taking a red herring that is very much hinted at. That's. Yeah. That this happened last yes. last session. Random scarf in the woods. Everyone was like, "Ooh, it must be here for a reason." And we spent way too much time investigating and climbing trees and searching around. And I just wanted to be mean. I one hundred percent just was like, "I wonder how long they'll." And I was on. I know. Me. I know. <laughs> you you were fine. I, that's why I'm saying I'm not going to sit here being like, "Ha I got you guys. I'm the superior DM." No, we have a specific relationship where I give you plot hooks. And you take them because you guys are nice and don't just ignore plot hooks I give you. I abused that <laughs> for my own entertainment. <laughs> Doesn't make me big brain DM. It makes me mean. <laughs> so anyways, what is this king's knife? It doesn't have any any actual use. I don't know. Make some flavor to it. Not not you guys. Just, you know, whoever's listening. If you're going to use it, throw something crazy on there. We got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I just did. And Morning Kane is in d and I just did the page search for the word King's Knife. Nothing came yep. up. Even the word, I guess, King does come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Huh, the, begin- the mystery results. is beginning to un- unravel. <laughs> Uh, wait, hold on, hold on. It's an apostrophe, us. I missed that. Kings. Nope, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... I just don't... To add to the mystery, it says short sword. It has the stats of a short sword. It is the height of the stone guard. Which they're short, so that makes sense. I get that. But they're still medium. But I mean, they could wield a long sword. I mean... A rapier. (laughs) They can't wield a rapier, Kevin. And why does it do piercing (laughs) damage instead of slashing? Oh, yeah, what? 
I think that's... Because the art looks like slashing. Well, kind of. It has blood at the point of the sword. So it does look like they've been using it for piercing. But why? I think short swords can do... I can't remember. There, I think this must be a holdover from an old edition, and it's just lore and context we don't have. Because well, you literally cannot pierce with a short sword; it's impossible. It, yeah, it's they a have slashing damage rounded, only. rounded tips. Yeah, to prevent people from doing that. <laughs> they wouldn't want you to yeah, hurt. They, they got those like styrofoam rubber thingies, plunked <laughs> yeah. short sword tip, and in, in real combat. And that's what this one has, but on the sides instead of like the the cool teeth blades on the side. Those are like covered up because like, we wouldn't want to hurt anybody with that we just yeah. gotta stab them there's like plastic guards yeah <laughs> like for a chainsaw yeah so i i don't know i feel like there there has to be something you could add but i'm blanking on what could make this cool and fit the art and make it seem worthwhile so maybe it should just be ignored and we're spending too much time on it maybe it's a scarf in the woods or if- I know, I know a lot of our listeners also know older editions, so if you know about what this is, the Stone Guard and the King's Knife, let us know. You keep that shit to yourself. Obviously don't. Yes, please tell us. I'm I'm curious, but if I worry if I put more brain power into it, I'm going to fry. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah. We don't want you to fry. The Warlord. Yes, so the Warlord is, I guess, pretty straightforward. It is a Durgar Warlord. Uh they are skilled at leading other Durgar into battle, and they can use spikes of psionic energy to compel Durgar warriors to fight harder. Uh, so they come in with a challenge rating of 6, so on the higher end. Uh, armor class of 20. They do have a shield, which again is important for the, the stone guard. Uh, HP of 75. Their stats are looking pretty good with 18 strength, uh, 17 con... And beyond that, 12 Intelligence, 12 Wisdom, 14 Charisma. Just not bad all around. Then everything else is the same as most Durgar. They have their Durgar Resilience, Sunlight Sensitivity. For their actions, though, they have Multi-Attack, which is surprisingly rare for these Durgar, I guess. They get to make three Hammer or Javelin attacks and uses Call to Attack or Enlarge if it's available. Probably one of the more confusing multi-attacks I've seen. Because it's make three attacks and then use the other abilities if you can. Because enlarge is a short rest. Only one of the other. Right, right. Only one or the other. And call to attack can be done every turn. But enlarge is a short rest or long rest ability. Right. So it's like really weird phrasing to just say they make three attacks and then either call to attack or enlarge if they can. Uh, So for their hammer, they have a psychic attuned hammer, plus seven to hit, 1d10 plus four bludgeoning damage, 2d10 if they're enlarged, and it does 1d10 psychic damage, which is always great if you have a barbarian in the party. Uh, It just gets around their resistances. Uh, Then they have their javelin, which is a basic javelin once again. Uh, Their call to attack ability is up to three allied Durgar within 120 feet of this Durgar that can hear it, can each use their reaction to make one weapon attack. That's going to be scary. I mean, so that's every turn. It just does that as part of its multi-attack. So it gets its like three psychic hammer attacks and does this. And then if you have like a Durgar despot nearby, (laughs) uh, which we talked about last time. 
those things hit hard. Yeah, that's they got their yeah rocket fists and that's the challenge rating twelve one. So yes, yeah. you're correct. That would be really really rough. Um, but if you're fighting a warlord and a despot, you're probably pretty high level and should expect to deal with some of that. Uh, yeah, it's still scary. oh yeah oh yeah. <laughs> um, that is. Yeah, or like the Screamer getting its 1D, its D12 drill attack or something off. Could those still? Because those are constructs. Doesn't it say just Allied Durgar? It does. Allied Durgar within 120 feet. I mean, it's an Allied Durgar. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I think they'd be more likely to just obey the command. Yeah. I'll say that, yeah. Because it doesn't, under the, I guess, sub humanoid part where it says like medium humanoid it says dwarf it doesn't say durgar if it said durgar then i would have probably seen an argument there right. but yeah, yeah i'm with you could could uh yeah. call on whoever um definitely one of my yeah. favorite abilities for commander type roles uh it just always seems really fitting to let them either reposition or make an attack something along those lines it gives them that concept of they are the warlord. They're the commander of this this army. Mm-hmm. And then it has its reaction, scouring, instruction, which is also pretty unique. Uh, when an ally that the Durgar can see makes a d20 roll, the Durgar can roll a d6, and the ally can add the number rolled to the d20 by taking 1d6 psychic damage. If you're immune to psychic damage, you can't be affected. Interesting. So... Yeah, so it's a reaction, so it's a once per round. The warlord, and the wording's kind of weird of saying the Duergar and the ally. My understanding is when it says the Duergar, it means the Duergar warlord. Correct. So when the warlord sees an ally make a d20 roll, the warlord could roll a d6, and the ally gets to add it to the d20 roll, and the ally takes 1d6 psychic damage. I assume you would just it would be the same roll. Yes. But it's that section not super clear, but I guess it doesn't matter that much. It is definitely Oh, you know what? It it wouldn't be the same role. I feel like most people would just use the same role, but as it's specified, it would be a different one. Right. Makes it a little more swingy, I guess. Uh, I do think it's interesting yeah. that they use the phrasing makes a D twenty roll. We don't really see that too often. Usually it specifies attack roll, saving throw, or ability check. So that's right. interesting to me. I don't know if there's anything that falls outside of those three, if this was just their attempt to try and simplify an already confusing text. Because it is. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. little yeah, yeah, yeah. weird. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, like attack roll, ability check, or saving throw should cover all D20 rolls. Yeah. I don't know I what else they could possibly try doing, uh, but this covers it. Yeah, like if you roll in a D20 on a spell, it's an attack. Right. Yeah. Huh. I think the only reason why it would just be simplicity, but yeah. that's like not the point. But it's the only place that does Right, it. which makes it more <laughs> confusing. And if it said saving throw, attack roll, ability check, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> it wouldn't right. it wouldn't be confusing at all. This so, entire yeah. chapter is filled with mysteries. Yeah. This is a breadcrumb <laughs> trail that we can't ignore. <laughs> maybe just maybe when we stare at something for too long it starts to have meaning that isn't there (laughs) and i like the flavor of this reaction because the whole thing with the duergar is their psionic abilities and their kind of harshness with each other yeah 
And so like a lot of leader warlord type stat blocks have something like call to attack. And this one takes it a step further where it could literally compul com- not compulsively, um, kind of force its will onto an ally in a way that will benefit it, but also hurt the ally. Right. Just feels very fitting for the duo. Definitely. Definitely. I- I'm big fan of that. Only other thing to mention for this stat block is their invisibility is a little bit different. It is a recharge ability. I think we've seen that at least one other time. Uh, but it just recharges on a four to six, so it can oh, it can yeah. turn invisible a little more often instead of just the one time short or long rest. Right. Yeah. And for, in terms of using a warlord, it's naturally going to be with a large group of the other Durgar. Um, I, these would not be like Rowan of Guards, or if you like run into a Durgar mining operation, there's not going to be a warlord there. This is going to be an intentional thing, unless you reflavored it. You would generally fight as a mining lord. <laughs> Durgar Foreman or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Last one here is the Durgar Zororn. And this is a specialist who constructs weapons using a mixture of alchemy and psionics. Uh, so it is a challenge rating 2, AC of 18, HP of 26. So you might be able to use it for a round. Uh, it has its normal resilience and sunlight sensitivity and a couple actions uh, that are, are brand new to it. First one being the Fire Lance. Uh, so melee weapon attack, plus five to hit with disadvantage if the target is within five feet of the Durgar uh, and has reach of 10 feet. So keeping them at a distance. Does 1d12 plus three piercing damage plus 1d6 fire damage or 2d12 if the Durgar is enlarged. Uh, so that at least is unique, and I like that aspect. And you could easily throw a shield on these guys and have them join the ranks of the uh, oh, the, yeah. the stone guards. And I mean, hey, you could maybe even throw the the phalanx formation trade on them as well, <clears throat> give them advantage on mm-hmm. it as they kind of take the the second row of things. That's getting into yeah, be cool. a level of wargaming that i don't know if if 5e is particularly suited for in a way like we're trying to do that with the campaign we're playing right now with a lot of like war game level shenanigans and you know it works in some ways it doesn't in others right lastly is fire spray recharge of five or six so from its fire lance the durgar shoots a 15 foot cone of fire or a line 30 feet long and 5 feet wide. Each creature in that area makes a DC 12 deck saving throw or takes 3d6 fire damage on a fail, uh, half as much on a success. So basically, it has burning hands that it can make a line if it wanted. Right. At this point, I'm like just not excited by this stat block, and it might be because I'm getting Durgar burnout. Uh, but like again, we're not getting any flavor. It's one sentence long that just says like, yeah, yeah, it uses alchemy and psionics. But we don't see that really reflected beyond this fire lance. Right, which is barely alchemy. Yeah, it just kind of has fire. <laughs> like, yeah, and even the fire spray, it's it takes away the flavor of the possibility of like some like oil or potion or alchemy thing. It's saying from the lance, it shoots out fire. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the implication, I think, is that right. it's an alchemist instrument. Like, yeah. they're shooting burning oil out of a lance. Yeah, that's true. And and that's something. I guess just with every other one of these having, like, some art tied to it and giving us something to 
try and evoke more emotions out of. I'm just not getting anything out of this one. The lack of art, I think, is the biggest issue with this chapter. Do you actually think that? Yes, actually. Okay. Uh, other than the breadcrumb trail, which you see, they're just irresponsible, and they knew it would bother <laughs> podcasters, or an important revelation that we've been the only ones to start uncovering. <laughs> but like, look at the Mind Master. The Mind Master was one that we talked about last episode, uh, but that has like this really, really cool art of a Duergar who looks like is psycho even for a Durgar and is like holding this this blackened heart uh and the stat block itself has has some pretty interesting aspects to it mm-hmm. whereas is this one it's like both challenge rating two, both Durgar. what does this one get uh a lance it, it feels like they ran they started running out of ideas and they had a quota you know what would uh, be pretty good you uh put this guy on a strider oh how about that yeah, that's all. That's a great point. Yeah. Now he gets a, a 10 foot reach on that strider and probably doesn't have to worry about burning his his uh, friends as much with that fire spray. So that's cool. And, and you know, there's probably ways that you can flavor it. If you want to uh, flavor the fire spray as them like taking out a potion and like pouring it into the end of their lance that they then like light one side of and just whoom a a plume of fire comes out cool all right you know you got something uh i guess i was just i would hope that there's more to this alchemy aspect of it that's actually shown in the stat block or in art either way but instead it's just like eh, we'll throw it in there yeah also a lot of times when i think alchemy i don't think fire what not do you directly think, at least does it go there? gold poison poison I just think of the uh, an acid, the infinite bag of Molotovs from the original take on the glass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's alchemy, so it's not. It's not. Yeah, I don't know. I think of gold. <laughs> I'm, I'm with Will there. So, kind of a lackluster one to end things on, but that's that's the last one we got. Overall, I think there's a ton of great Durgar stat blocks, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is. I did not realize there were so many in here until we started doing yeah. this. Mordekainen's does this a lot, but it's great. This has a ton for low-level encounters. You can do just one through ten. So many different ways to fight these things. Right. Yeah, and I think we we talked about that last time as well. Where since these are creatures, you would not expect to fight one on one just about ever. Maybe. Maybe the the despot because it's so high challenge rating you can get away with it, um, but even that's probably going to have a, a couple minions around it. With the okay challenge rating, like we're not looking at one fourth challenge rating stuff. So if you throw a couple challenge rating three creatures at a level seven to ten party, you will challenge them. It's not going to be a deadly fight, but it's at least going to be a fun fight. So I think there's a lot here for any levels to make a fun, interesting fight. And you have so many pieces. It's just a matter of how you put them together and what fight you're trying to do. Um, something to also note in this book that I do like, if you are looking to create some of these encounters, if you are in the Underdark, they have a the Duragar tables in the Dwarves and Duragar chapter, which lets you roll on these tables and create accurate party compositions with purpose and special allies that you can throw at your parties. And there's some wacky ones in there. You want to have a shield guardian 
attached to the Duragar buds. That'll be fun. Yeah, I didn't even see that. This is actually really cool. It gives you a lot to work with. And like yeah. purpose of raid, special circumstances, names, why not? That's really cool. Yeah, this is a great book. <laughs> Which I think I've been saying for years, but a lot of these books are just full of fun stuff. Yeah, overall, I'm really happy with the Duergar and all the different stat blocks and tons of versatility there. I could very easily make a campaign or a large adventure centered around them without it getting dry and boring. The The only final thought I have is a warning to DMs, because I think I have done this in the past, is with all of these different stat blocks, I think there's going to be a lot of desire to put like, you know, one of each into one of these fights. And then you're trying to manage like, you know, eight different stat blocks in a single fight. And that can get really, really difficult. Uh, So keep that in mind when you're putting these together is a couple of smaller fights is, you know, with three stat blocks is going to be a lot easier to manage than one very large fight with a warlord and five soul blades and two stone guards and a despot and like all these things that you're just like jumping around trying to remember what each of their specific things are. You'll just forget stuff. Right. Yeah, I will time. totally, totally get behind that because the I, the players don't care how complex the stat blocks are behind your DM screen. If anything, it can be, I want to say a little bit annoying as yeah. a player. You don't learn anything. Because, That's the issue. It's like everything right. is new. Yeah. Like as a player, I feel like you want to have like that new thing, you get that new thing, and now it's a matter of, oh, we need to figure out what that new thing is and how to, like, work around it. Uh, and if there's 20 new things in one fight, you're just like, I, I don't know. Just keep just keep hitting shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> right. All these Durgar have just turned into large-sized creatures, and they keep whacking me for, like, 20 damage. And I guess one of them has a fire lance. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> cool but i got nothing else on Dorgar. i think we're mo- good to move on to our final final segment all right let's get into ask monsters and multi-class Woo! play the music kevin nah wow what a horrible song that's what we get for going royalty free <laughs> nah wow, dude that was a banger <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this question comes from user Glum Creature. Uh, interesting, interesting name. Uh, so Session Zero, for me, has been a crucial aspect to starting a adventure off running. It can really bring out the best in all your players when they know the setting and any plot hooks they can use. How do you feel about Session Zeros? How do you run them? Uh, and the, just some general excite for the Session Zero guide coming in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, so session zeros, let's just start with defining what that is. If by some chance you don't know, uh, session zero is a chance for the group to come together away from the, uh, actual playing of the game to talk about game expectations. Uh, and I think it's been a a really popular topic recently, uh, as, a lot of issues that we see come up at tables usually spawn from not laying out clear guidelines in session zero. So with that said, how do you guys feel about session zeros? 
Just to clarify, it's before you start playing. You said just come together outside of the game. Oh, sorry. It's like, yeah, literally session zero before session one. I mean, it's hard to say anything against the concept of a session zero. Um, Overall, great idea. That being said, we as a group have never formally done one. Because you have to take into account who you're playing with. Like our groups, it's generally us three and we know each other really well. And then a few other friends who we also know really well. And we are in pretty regular contact with and kind of know what we're all interested in a game. And we just kind of have casual conversations leading up to starting like a new campaign. Right. So, and that is true. We've never had like a, hey, everybody come over and we're going to take three or four hours to talk about what the game is going to be and make our characters together. We don't do that. Uh, we do cover everything that I would expect to cover in a session zero, especially when we have a new person. But right. even still, saying like from a a veteran perspective of in the sense of playing with the same people over and over and over, uh, you don't need to spend as much time talking about the what is and what isn't allowed in your game. And it becomes more important to really set the stage for what campaign are you trying to run and making sure that everybody's on the same page there. Um, because that's something that I feel like I've run into issues with, um, really with just one person uh, <laughs> multiple times, who doesn't, or you know, for whatever reason, we're just not on the same page of what the campaign is going to look like or what the gameplay is going to look like. Uh, but as you said, like we'll have these conversations beforehand. Usually it's like, hey, this is the game that we're going to run. And then we talk about characters and we talk about how this is actually going to to work for everyone. Right. The one aspect that uh, I think we, we don't do that often that can work really well for groups, and I've heard a lot of success around, is using Session Zero to tie each other's characters together. Uh, and again, I, I think that's something that we don't do too often for whatever reason that's just not how we want to do things totally fine uh but i have heard a lot of groups like the idea of you know use session zero to come up with how you've heard of this other party member or a rumor about yourself that other players have heard and that can really help kickstart the role playing um in a way that you just feel like you have some knowledge of each other and you're not just going into things completely blind uh the first time that you're playing uh to some extent i like that blindness and having to learn everybody's character from from zero i I like i like both i can see my my biggest issue is there's this kind of default um spoiler alert for out of the best you start in jail and have no reason to know any of the people there that makes sense. It's a very intentional what the hell's going on. But a lot of a lot of campaigns, it's all right, why are we all on this adventure together? It's like because I want to play D D on Tuesdays at 730. <laughs> <laughs> I, just throw enemies at me and tell me where to go, please. And that's fine and it's a good way to get started, but it is a little rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, that's that's the type of thing that session zero should have come out to be completely honest, where if you're the type of player who says, I just want to show up and have enemies thrown at me. Why are you asking me about my backstory? Uh, And the person says, the DM says, Hey, I want to run a really role play heavy game. There's not going to be much combat. Uh, Then yes, that stuff should come out in session zero. And you should be able to work that stuff out beforehand. So that way it's not 
six months of trying to work your campaign to suit them or them just getting frustrated because the party doesn't want to do what they want to do. You know, that's that's the joy of a session zero and having these conversations beforehand. Right. Yeah, like so when you're saying type of campaign, this is the type of stuff like that that was one example where oh I want to just really role play having not much combat and somebody's really just looking for combat after combat, like a mega dungeon. In that sort of case, I don't think there's any really kind of coming to a middle ground. It's just that one person's probably not gonna play in that campaign. Right. And, and that's okay. It's no one should be forced to, and the rest of the group should not be forced to completely change the idea that they had around one person or maybe the idea is i want to run a really like lighthearted, silly over the top comical campaign and somebody gets really annoyed of all that sort of stuff and really kind of wants a more realistic heavy sort of grim dark type campaign it's like that's all stuff that should come up beforehand it shouldn't be a surprise right right and then for that that's important for anybody even like groups of people who know each other really well we still do that just to make sure we're all like on the same page they have characters that fit that sort of stuff. It's also a good time to talk about well, what sort of races would be available. And I would say just expanding that, like, like that, just all broad, like what mechanics are okay. Are there any like table home rules that are going to come up? That one I think is always really important. The the home rules aspect. Now we've talked about home rules before, how it just needs to be a table conversation. But when you're with new people, especially you need to say, Hey, these are our home rules. So that way this isn't a surprise to you later. Yeah, because some of them could kind of impact how you would like made your character. If I knew that, I wouldn't have made this choice. <laughs> right. In Warlocks, you come to the table and your Warlock's completely broken. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, yeah, no, Warlocks are int in this world. You're just going to suck at everything for a while until you get four stat-ups. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then the other side of things, which is coming at it from a brand new table maybe it's just one new person maybe it's a whole group of new people uh this is something where i think a lot of people want to say that it's a group a group thing like just like the session zero becomes what everybody in the group needs it to be but i would heavily disagree with that and actually say that the dm is the one who needs to take a lot of responsibility and and take charge with your session zero and be the one who talks about really most of everything. Because when you're a DM for a brand new group, you are kind of the the focal point. Uh, and it's it's really your job to to set the expectation. And so, you know, you have to be the one to have the uncomfortable conversations. And that's like, you know, like I when I start with new people. First thing I always say, well, one of the first things is, hey, you know what? Gore is going to be like R-rated, if not more, because I absolutely love over-the-top like gore descriptions. I think it's just silly fun, and it's, I love that. But you know, when it comes to other adult themes, I want to keep that PG-13. And if you step outside of that line, you're probably going to be kicked out of the table. Or, you know, we'll have a nice conversation and you never do it again and whatever. But the point is, I view that as the DM's responsibility. It shouldn't be up to a player to bring up those kind of uncomfortable topics. The DM's the lead and they got to take some charge there. And I think that's hard for people to to grasp. Dungeon master. And it's their table, you know. (laughs) it's You'll make the counterpoint that it's not their table if everybody leaves. But that's what they're coming to and they have to set the stage for this stuff. Right, that's what session zero is for. 
At, at the same time, though, I, I don't know if I'd phrase it as like the DM is dictating to the group. This is what's okay and this is what's not. I mean, there needs to be general buy-in. Like, let's say you were trying to, let's say, playing with people from work. I know you've mentioned that right. recently, and you say your gore thing, and someone says, "Actually, that type of stuff. I'm really sensitive to that. I really want to play this." But if you're going into really detailed about people being sliced open and entrails falling out, I know I'm going to be uncomfortable. Could you rein that in for me right. a bit? I, I think it's that's within their right, and they should bring it up and. You are 100%. Magic. Oh, yeah, you're right. Not 100%. What I'm saying is, is less about what the DM says goes. And you're never going to have a time where the DM's like, Ugh, I don't really like gore. And all the players are like, I love gore. And the DM's like, well, <laughs> what you say goes. And like the DM's vomiting while making their own descriptions. <laughs> uh, split the cabin <laughs> in half. Tell me about the entrails. <laughs> Um, so reining it in, I think you're totally right. That's, that's like perfectly acceptable. My main point is that it is the DM's job to bring it up in the first place where I, I don't expect the players to have to have that responsibility. Now, yes, you should definitely feel comfortable, uh, coming to the table and saying what is going to bother you. And that's, everybody should be on the same page with that. I mean, without a doubt, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is just put a little bit of that responsibility on the DM to say, Hey guys, what bothers you? This is what I like to run. And this is how I want to do it. Can you all tell me what better way is this? Because it's, it's uncomfortable for the players. A lot of times, if somebody says like, Hey, uh, I don't want any handholding in my DM in, in my in my D and D games. Handholding makes me uncomfortable. They might feel embarrassed to say that because you know that's like oh well right. it's silly. Why would I feel uncomfortable about that? But you know if the DM kind of opens up the table to that discussion in either one on one conversations or maybe the the session zero if everyone's comfortable, great. But it just it needs to be brought up and you can't wait for the players to do it. I don't think. Right. Yeah, that that's if it's definitely if it's not coming up, DM needs to make sure it comes up. Uh, the one on one thing is big because I think this might be a lot of times people are uncomfortable to bring someone up in the big group, but just kind of message it or say it to the DM separately, and it's like, yeah, sure, I'll make sure that's left out of there. If I see things going that way, we'll make sure we steer it away, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then there's the other option I've gained some popularity recently. I'm drawing a complete blank on the name. It's like a sheet of paper, a questionnaire, has a big title across the top, where it has a bunch of possibly sensitive topics and you mark your comfort level with them. And that could be done almost anonymously, right. really. That's also another really that's that's kind of the especially for a completely brand new group where like nobody knows anybody. I mean that's probably your best bet. I don't yeah. Know think there's any harm in doing that um for like us where we've all known each other for years and years and years and know each other's lives and what we're comfortable with and i don't think we need to fill it out every time and i think that's what a lot of people because that was all ablaze on twitter when it came out and of course when something's on twitter you're going to see the people who say like oh that's a horrible idea like these damn snowflakes whatever it's because they can't get the idea in their head that like hey this is not for the people you've been playing with for 20 years. You guys have been playing together forever. Right. This doesn't, if you don't think it's worthwhile, then don't use it. But it's a tool here for people who haven't been playing together, that they're brand new and they need a comfortable way to figure this information out. Here it is. Go for it. Right. So other things to cover in session zero. Continuing with that idea of of brand new, and we kind of talked about like, you know, explaining what the campaign is going to look like. Um, rule familiarity 
I think is a good thing to cover. Like when I talk with my my coworkers uh, who I've been DMing for, they're all brand new. And I tell them like, hey, I would love if you guys spend some time learning your characters. But I also understand this is something we're doing once a month and I don't expect you to have absolutely everything down. I'm going to be a little bit light on the rules and I expect, you know, everybody just kind of be patient with each other. Uh, Whereas at our main game, I have a hard time letting new people in because I think they'll be intimidated by our knowledge of the rules. And like, I, I like to have almost like a stepping stone where it's like, yeah, let's play a couple games together. And, oh, you seem like you're getting this. Great. Want to come to our actual game? <laughs> because we're we're hardcore about it. I mean, seriously, we're like, yeah, yeah, you don't pull punches. Right, and, right. And I, and it, yeah. it would make it difficult for me if I was trying to like take it easy on one character compared to everybody else. Yeah, I get that because the argument could be made that's like since we've all been playing so long, then we could really help them. But at what point does that become annoying? Where they just feel like they're being just kind of coached and bullied by the rest of the table to do what they're being told to right. do instead of being able to just play their game. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I think that that can feel like a, a weird spot. And I'm not saying you can't let new people in. Um, obviously, that would be silly. And we've had new people start, and they get it after a while. Um, but it's definitely something you have to have everybody be on the same page with, where if I say I want to run a high level combat intensive campaign for the next three months, and also I brought this new person who's never played D&D before, that's like, oh, uh, yeah. that's the well, best combo. It's like we're starting <laughs> level 15. There's no limitations on rules. <laughs> Session zero. Fuck it. Right. <laughs> I've never played. I'll oh, just start rolling, man. Just start rolling. <laughs> oh, don't Something worry. We'll keep land. it simple. Here's here's a druid. You'll you'll get it. <laughs> yeah, just play a druid. Right? <laughs> so here's a list of 14 different animals and 90 spells. You got these? Yeah. Oh, and don't forget druids are really good conjurers. Here's the everything you can catch. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just just keeping that in mind of, you know, who Knowing your audience, I guess, is the, the best way to put that of you. You want to make sure that everybody has this, not the same level of familiarity, but at least it's a campaign that is fitting to the level of rule familiarity that you have. Yeah, that can just get out of hand. One shots first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I think that pretty much covers in session zeros, though. It's the... Make sure everyone's on the same page with the type of campaign being run in terms of role play or combat heavy, lighthearted, dark, whatever. Like the universe, understand it, know what races and type of classes and behaviors are to be expected. The mechanical side of things, homebrewing, you know, how hard is this going to be? Easy, blah, blah, blah. And then the whole comfort level. The, there's a term for that. I cannot remember it. <laughs> it's not comfort level of things. It's. I don't know. That actually does remind me, though. It's the kind of almost opposite of a session zero. If you are a less experienced DM, put in the time to read the material. Just like, <laughs> this game has gotten out of control. Just crack open the races page on D&D Beyond. It's just shit I haven't even heard of, and I do a podcast on this stuff. Your players <laughs> can now come to you with elephant people, blood hunters. Try your best. Listen to podcasts. Maybe comment on their subreddits. <laughs> but yeah, be prepared for shenanigans because they're just adding more every single book. 
And to add on to that, if you are a new DM, don't be afraid to say, no, don't use that book. I'm I'm sorry. Like, I don't yeah. like we're not going to do Xanathar's classes. Sorry, guys. I just started playing and I know there's all these subclasses and maybe you think one is really cool. Let's just play for like three months. And if we want to like end this and, and move to different classes, great. But like, please bear with me as I as I get the, the handle on these <laughs> <Yeah>. rules. <laughs> Will keeps telling me to read the DMG and I'm only 50 pages in. Please. <laughs> no one's read that friggin' book. It's like, I wonder if there's rules for climbing ladders. It's like, page 242, you idiot that came out seven years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. No, Anything I think else? that's it. But I, I will want to add just one, one last bit that I probably could have added in the promotional minute. It just... If you are on any of our social media, please do feel free to reach out and you know, let us know how, how you feel about episodes or thoughts on them or totally unrelated D&D thoughts. I mean, please just post them. When I wake up and I see a new post on our subreddit that I didn't personally make, uh, it always makes me extremely happy. Uh, so keep that stuff coming. I love the discussion and it's it's nice having this little community of you know, over the top nerds. And I don't have to worry about sifting through pages and pages of art on our D and D. I had to, it's a great subreddit for D and D art. Cool. All right. Well, with that, thanks for listening next time on monsters and multi-class. Join us for part one of our Tasha's cauldron of everything. Comprehensive guide and overview. We'll cover subclasses and some rules and new book. Oh, proficiency bonuses. <laughs>